All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Theology on Mission Podcast 2023. I believe this is our second episode, Mike Moore. Isn't it for 2023? That's right. But this is the first one we've actually... This is the first one we've actually recorded in 2023. Well, this is why I can't keep track. Can't keep track of you. I can't. You're a busy man, and I can't keep track of this podcast. But I do show up. Yes. When I'm told. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for showing up, Dave. And I do show up with material. This one, you're not really bringing much material. Somebody else is bringing it. All right, but hey, give me credit for this particular guest, which, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to introduce, but give us a little more time. We had all 15 students plus professor over at my house, and you showed up. Yeah. And you were were the life of the party, by the way. I get that all the time, yeah. I come in, the party happens, yeah. That's me. Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So people were saying, uh, talking about the podcast, and, and, uh, you know, uh, they were complaining that I talk too much. Hmm. That they don't. Okay. That you don't have enough space to talk. Oh, that's nice of them. They should write that down in the reviews <laughs> with five stars. Okay, but but okay, folks. I just want you to know I've been listening to this complaint, and we're going to try to improve it by giving Mike more more. I, I'd call it FaceTime, but that does more more voice in yeah. this. This really just feels like one of those conversations that you have, like, not on the show. You know, maybe maybe before we hit record. <laughs> It'd be great if we ever did actually have conversations outside. That's not true, folks. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's Theology on Mission podcast, the place where theology meets the challenges of culture for mission, for Christ and his kingdom. And today we have... A very special guest. I call him Dr. Johnny. Earlier, before the podcast actually began, I I said, I talked about WKRP in Cincinnati. Neither of the two guests had ever heard of that show because they're both rather young. But I'm, I'm going to, Dr. Johnny was, as I recall, Dr. Johnny was a, was a person on that character on that podcast. So I'm just going to call Johnny Morrison, Dr. Johnny. Dr. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. You've written a great book, Light as Air. Yes. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a pastor. You're a writer. You're a thinker. You do a lot of things. What? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. And I don't know who Dr. Johnny is, but I'll take it. Johnny is <laughs> what I think he was called. But uh, yeah. So my name is Johnny Morrison. I'm a pastor in Salt Lake City, Utah, with a church called Missio Day. And a writer wrote this book, Light as Air. And then in my free time, I like to be outside and hang out with my wife and cook food and try some fly fishing. And, you know, and then I dabble in thinking, as you mentioned. Fly fishing. <laughs> out of all that stuff I just heard, fly fishing kind of stuck out. My more has been fly fishing. I, yeah, yeah. I got a whole, a whole kit. I've done it one time. And I was not su- successful. Do you catch anything? Well, what is what is the old dad joke is that it's called fishing, not catching. So I think that's an important yeah. thing to remember about yeah. the art and sport of fly fishing is that's that it is good. about standing somewhere beautiful and maybe catching a fish. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Norman, Norman McLean would approve of that description. <laughs> and if you're in Utah, of course, that description of fly fishing works well. I can go stand in a beautiful place and, and do nothing. 
If you're in Chicago, Chicago River, maybe, Mike Moore? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Is there fish there that you can catch? There uh, are. There are quite a uh, few. Yeah, yeah they might one. catch you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Johnny, you said you're a pastor of a church in Salt Lake City. Uh, can you give me three sentences on describing what kind of church? Folks, we need more pastors on this podcast. We need to learn from pastors on this podcast. What kind of church uh, are you pastoring there in Utah? So it's a, we planted in 2010 and throughout that years of existing, we've changed a lot and transformed a lot. I came on staff in 2015 and when I came on, we were, uh, we'd kind of emerged out of a very strange set of traditions, uh, a little bit emerging, a little bit missional and a little bit neo-reformed was kind of like the bedrock of our uh, community. We'd planted out of a set of churches in Portland, Oregon and tried to merge all those things together and then. In 2019, Johnny, you, you can tell us who those churches were that you planted out of. Is that secret? No, no, no. Yeah. So the 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 primary church we were sent out of was a church called Imago Day Community Church, which yes. uh, was the very first Acts 29 church plant, and then they left over issues of women in ministry pretty early in the process because um, they wanted women as pastors, but they did not want women as elders, and so they drew a pretty thin line between the the role of a pastor versus the, or the gifting of a pastor, as they would say, versus the role of an elder in a local church. So that's where we came out of, which was trying to hold all those like disparate traditions together. And then for us in uh, myself and my co-pastor, we took over senior leadership in 2019 and uh, have been on kind of a journey of unraveling some of the less helpful parts of that tradition, holding on to the things that were really beautiful and empowering about that tradition. And so have, been on a big journey since that and then you know did that in the midst of the pandemic and all the other things that caused further unraveling i i'm curious what's it like to pastor in salt lake because i know a few people who have planted in salt lake um but but their approach has been more uh there's a lot of mormons out there that need to get saved um so that's kind of their impetus for planting Mm -hmm. in salt lake what's kind of like the culture the milieu of being a pastor being a christian in a place that's so um so well known for the mormon faith yeah i think salt lake is such an interesting place so if you if you're in salt lake city you have one culture uh i used to say you have a lot of many cultures but the culture is very different than if you then head south or north into suburban utah if you move south and north in Utah, you will get to communities that are 90, 98% LDS, uh, which wow. is kind of like a, that's a different, that's a different context to do ministry in. And it's not mm-hmm. my context. We're in Salt Lake City. And I think Salt Lake is maybe better compared to something kind of like Portland in that it is responding pretty aggressively to the conservatism and religiosity of the LDS faith. Mm-hmm. So you have lots of young people who have deconstructed not evangelicalism, but have deconstructed Mormonism, and then they move into the city uh, and live in sort of response to the faith that they were raised in. So mm-hmm. uh, like Salt Lake, I think like things that are interesting examples of this, like Salt Lake was one of the, it was like the 12th city to legalize gay marriage, which you would not expect of Utah, which is such a red state, but the yeah. city itself tends to be quite progressive and quite liberal. And then it has to do that in conflict with uh, like state politics. Hmm. Oh, fascinating. That is, <clears throat> that is a, 
an amazing dynamic that uh, I think it should be studied numerous different ways. Um, so, uh, Johnny, you wrote this book. The book, folks, is Light as Air. And I uh, endorsed it on the back by saying, folks, we are tired. We are angry. We are frustrated and unhappy. We are Christians living in an unseemly time. And Johnny Morrison's book arrives to give us something for this moment. Uh, why did you write this book? How did this book happen, Johnny Morrison? Yeah, uh, I appreciate that endorsement, too. It was very kind. Uh, I started writing the book in 2016. That was when the first notes and first ideas began to percolate. I was in... Uh, I think I was just about to begin the doctoral cohort at Northern with you and Donald Trump had just been elected. And I don't think Donald Trump was the reason I wrote the book, but I heard an activist say recently that uh, Trump was not the reason we swam, but Trump was the water in which we were swimming. And I think that's a good description of just the, the cultural moment that we were living in post 2016. And as I was pastoring, I experienced both folks who were, so wildly dissatisfied with politics in America and with the way the church had lived and expressed itself that they went towards Trump. And then at the mm. same time, you saw people who were so wildly dissatisfied with that decision that their faith then moved in a, in a radically different kind of direction. And as a local pastor, which I mean, a lot of you who are listening to this and you guys know this, you're trying to hold the polarity between people who are expressing deep, deep dissatisfaction with their faith, with the country, with their communities, with more intimate things like their families and their lives. And it's expressing itself in this uh, like kind of political instantiation of moving really hard to the right or moving really hard to the left. Uh, and so that was, that was the question that began. I was like, why are we so dissatisfied? Why are we so angry, angry enough to vote for Trump and then angry enough to uh, divide. And as the pandemic happened a few years later, that just uh, added another layer where I mm -hmm. watched people I loved and respected uh, unravel around the like ideological gestures of COVID-19. I saw a man who I had considered leader in our church literally yell at a 19-year-old volunteer about wearing about not wearing masks in a church service. And I was like, how did, we, mm -hmm. how did this happen that you're... Mm -hmm your faith leads to this kind of expression when five years mm. ago I would have said this is like a deeply respectable, wise Christian leader in our church. So that was sort of the impetus is like, here's what I'm seeing happen. And it's political, it's happening in our churches. And then as I started to pull back the layers, both in my own heart and in our communities, I felt like it was also happening at much deeper layers in terms of a dissatisfaction with our faith, a dissatisfaction with our lives, a dissatisfaction with marriages. I was watching people who had gotten married in the church uh, blow up their marriages because they hadn't led to the things they thought were promised marriage to lead to in kind of like evangelical context. So it was a question of dissatisfaction. Why are we so dissatisfied? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I think Mike Moore can relate to this. I can relate to this. Th this is the turf uh, that we're so, so many of us pastors are dealing with <clears throat> and the temptation is uh to get uh unnuanced towards the culture the temptation is to take a dive in and go as you said johnny far right or far left i cannot believe 
the amount of anger and just blatant brutality on the social media airwaves and it plays out in our lives and this is the state of what's happened here and so um you start out i think you start out in the book by talking about just the state of the culture and the restlessness that it is stirring up inside of us uh in relation to desire and dreams and so forth um how how do you if 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 most Christians today, I'll call them modern Christians with a flat epistemology. No one else understands that but me, but I, I feel somewhat better for saying it. Uh, it, it, it. The temptation for those people is to go, I'm going right or I'm going left, and I've seen it happen. What's your, what's your, what's your analysis on the state of the culture and how we have to gauge it as persons, as Christians? Yeah. Well, I think I think that temptation is really fair. I think it's also important to sort of affirm why that that temptation is there and why both left and right expressions of our dissatisfaction happen. I think often we're looking for handholds. We're looking for something to concretize our faith and uh, politics to use this as the example, feels like an expression of something, like a way to get control, a way to do something meaningful, a way to get your hands in the dirt and have an impact. And I think if you felt so, I don't, I don't know if this is what you meant by flat epistemology, but the thing that came to my mind is that if your uh, faith is so disconnected from materiality, then you start looking for material expressions of your convictions and your beliefs. And so First, I think you just there's a, there's an affirmation there. There's something underneath it where people are looking for meaningful action, uh, and so I think I, I'm hesitant to say we affirm it, but I do think you have to affirm what's underneath it. Why are we doing that? Is that we feel dissatisfied, we feel impotent, we feel powerless, and we want to get our hands on something to impact the world around us, to have some kind of control of our lives. But I think underneath that even is a question of why do we desire the things that we desire? Where do those desires come from? And what stories, or to use the theologian Walter Wink's language, what meta-narratives are shaping those stories, those desires, and then the way they get played out? And the, and the argument that I make throughout Light is Air is that American culture and then American churches have sold to us or have told uh again, to use your language, a flat story. And those desires that come with that flat story are by their very nature, pretty bankrupt. And they are going to lead to dissatisfaction. They're going to lead to uh, like a Girardian kind of resentment within us uh, because there is no fulfillment of those desires. Hmm. Yeah. Um, When I say flat epistemology, by the way, folks, I'm, I'm talking about the, the way we understand knowledge, pistes, and uh, that we think that the way we read something, let's say propositionally, is the way everybody reads it. The way we read it, that culture has no uh, way of shaping how we enter it as a self, as, an, uh, uh, as understanding the sentence. So... Quite often, Christians are saying, well, the Bible says uh, uh, elders need to be 
uh, husband of one wife. Okay, then that means all elders need to be husbands, and uh, and that means they need to be male and uh, defect. But but wait wait, what was going on culturally there that uh, Paul only talked about males as versus? Anyways, all this to say, there's all these cultural and layers of meaning that if we don't actually sit and listen in a culture and understand what's going on, uh, we will think we're saying one thing and the culture or the people in the culture will be hearing another. The problem of flat epistemology. Yeah, and, and, and so you are pointing out that there's this rampaging culture that's stirring up desires, systems of uh, consumption, and, um, and that we are pursuing... Christianity based on this, on just a very flat, uh, homogenous way of thinking about Christianity. What do you do with that, uh, John? What's the, how's the church supposed to engage a culture like that? And by the way, by folks, uh, uh, Dr. Johnny Morrison is a graduate of the uh, doctorate program of contextual theology, as is Mr. Mike Moore. Oh, that's wait, right. Doc, Dr. Mike Moore, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and so we're having a, a great conversation here about things we've talked about many times before. Go ahead, Jen. How, given the state of the culture and desire, is the church to be different? How is the church to be different? Well, I think I love the thing you said about like discerning the cultural influences that are happening to shape our thinking. So I think that is maybe the first thing is if you can have some empathy for why this moment leads people to try to find expressions of their faith. And then I think if we can enter in as contextual theologians and as listeners to say, what are the stories that are shaping the cultural moment we live in? How are those stories then getting expressed in our politics and our families and our marriages? Because I think the church has to own how it's been complicit in shallow stories. And so where we've sold, for example, like a, an otherworldly eschatology that says nothing about the world around us, I think we need to own those moments or where our story has looked more like the American dream than it has like the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think, again, we just need to own those moments because the more that we own them, I think the more it opens up space for us to have a kind of disruptive experience of what it is that the gospel is actually offering to us. Hmm. So I think naming Can you it, give us an it. example of that, Johnny, uh, owning a mo- church, owning the, the moment uh, that you're describing. Yeah. Like a, like a practical example or a, like a theological example, a practical one. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I, so we recently, um, have been having conversations in our own church about the role of the spirit in life of a Christian. And I think for us, we, we have been hesitant to have those conversations because talking about the spirit felt so otherworldly. We didn't know how to do that in a way that was like grounded in the world around us. And it felt like it could lead to conversations about otherworldliness or conversations about other spirituality And so we started looking through the stories in the book of Acts where the Spirit shows up. And the very first moment we looked at is Pentecost. And we were just having a conversation about what is the first act the Spirit does in the story of Pentecost. And it is tongues of fire. But the thing that we found so noticeable about that moment is that the tongues of fire have the disciples speaking languages that are non-Hebraic right after Jesus has told them the kingdom is going to be at hand to them. 
And so the spirit comes into their, their context, disrupts the languages they would have thought, disrupts some, maybe you could say like Israelite nationalism. So we were just having this conversation in our own context. And what it led to was uh, some repentance around Christian nationalism in our own context. And more than anything else, it led to an imagination that the spirit might be at work in people's communities to lead them into reconciliation with other people, to lead them into communities with other people. So we were just owning some things, having a slightly different conversation about what the spirit might be doing in our context. And we started to see it do some disruptive work. Does that, does that speak to the example you're asking for? Yes. Um, so uh, uh, that, that's a very um, powerful example because uh uh, the the role of the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit works has been framed in certain ways, probably too simplistically. Probably in the in in and it illustrates what you're saying about the culture. It gives a narrative of the Holy Spirit that's going to fulfill all your desires, needs, etc. That you've learned from someplace else, foreign to the gospel, the culture. And unless you own how we fed into that, you're not going to get anywhere out of that and into the truth of the grounding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a good example. Mike Moore, how about you? Do you have an example of how you have to own? Uh, you know, I've been sitting here. I'm not necessarily chewing on an example, but I do have another question for John. Oh, right. right. I'm, one, I'm wondering, you're describing he, these. He does this to me all the time, by the way, Johnny Morrison. Yeah. He, I, I, I give him a, I do. what do you call it, a layup, and he takes it and, it goes go down the other end of the court, but go ahead. I'm wondering for you, Johnny, you talk about these competing shallow stories that the church is complicit in. What do you think it is about those stories that makes it so attractive to the mm. church? I, you know, so I grew up in a Christian home and my mom, I don't know if this is, we grew up Pentecostal, so I don't know if this is a traditional Pentecostal thing to say, but my mom would always say that the devil is a counterfeit. And I think that's actually really helpful for me to think about yeah. these stories is that they are counterfeits and that they offer something very compelling. And I think they offer something that feels accessible. It is a bit easier to get your mind around. It's a bit easier to get your hands on. So, for example, it is there is a kind of community that forms in antagonism when you are against something. And mm -hmm. I think that kind of community is really compelling. Like it's really community community building in a way to be like, I hate this thing. You hate this thing. We all hate it together. <laughs> yeah. And that, that builds us into a functional community. And it feels really enticing because when you go into churches who are, who are not animated by those same things, it can often feel like our community is like a social group where we're mm -hmm. united by this like kind of like loose thing that we like, but the community that, that builds isn't that compelling. Whereas like the community that is built around hating something can be so viscerally compelling. Now we know you can say that out loud and be like, yeah, that's not as good. Mm -hmm. But when you're in it, the contagion of antagonism is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think just yeah. that we get something we want, it's just not what we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. true. Yeah. So true. You know, we, we've got to get, we've got to land this plane. But before we land it, I just want to read a little phrase out of chapter seven. Johnny says, we are desiring being saturated in a landscape of media images and perpetuating systems that work effectively to aim our desires at rival kingdoms. 
Thank you, Johnny. That was just what you were referring to. But then you say every day we are offered empty means toward false, told to run towards a dream that is and will always be out of reach. Instead of rest or fulfillment, we get catharsis, a cheap shot of manufactured hope to hold us over. That, to me, describes the state of a lot of the church today, United States of America. Somewhat mm-hmm. Canada, although Canada is better than the United States. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, so how, give us something. I know we've already talked about it in our conversation already, but give us something. What is it that you're offering in this book besides a uh, diagnosis? Hmm. Where do we go from this place? Because it's Mm -hmm. everywhere, Johnny. It's what you're describing is everywhere. Yeah. So I think think to begin to move out of it, there's a few things that feel, for me personally, that were really powerful. One is capturing a bigger story of the gospel. I think for so many of us that grew up in a religious context where the gospel was subservient to maybe the American dream or subservient to those other smaller stories— recapturing the gospel in its bigness is a powerfully disrupting thing to the narratives around us because it is a, we would say it's not manufactured hope. It's something much, much bigger, something much, much better. So capturing a bigger imagination for what the gospel is, for what our story is, for what we're hoping in. And then I think grounding our story in the world around us is actually really important. Uh, When we don't have a way to get our hands on the story, it leads us, I think, to more cynicism. There's this really beautiful Richard Rorty quote where he says that theory without practice leads to theoretical hallucinations, which I love that quote because I think so often that happens in the church is we have these really big ideas about God, but our, our hands never get in it. And when our hands never touch our faith, we never get to see the kinds of hope, the kinds of change that could then engender in us new visions for what's possible in the world around us. And so we would have a bigger story, but the story can't stay theoretical. It has to get practical. It has to get material. It has to get worked into the, the world around us. Yeah, and, and for me, where this goes is 10 to 12 people sitting around a table uh, talking and discussing what is their immediate challenge that lies before them. It could be on a Sunday night like last night. It could be going to work. It could be not having a place to live. It could be <clears throat> being having a marriage that is struggling. It could be any number of things. Not discern having a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus that's coming over for a break from a mayhem life. It doesn't I could go on and on. It, having a, a racism filled police force that keeps going up and down your street and stopping three doors down where my where my black neighbors live. It could be whatever, but what? how are we going to respond? And what are we going to do? And how are we going to walk into the obedience of the gospel? And, and by that, I mean Jesus is Lord. He's working to redeem, reconcile, renew all things, including you, but including the world around you and all that you're involved in. How am I going to respond today? concretely materially to Mm -hmm. the message of this huge big gospel that's to me 
if we don't go that next step into those discipleship processes together around a table, I think it kind of falls flat. And we, we then go, go into our own minds. It's kind of the Richard Rohr thing. We create these theoretical imaginative things that we think is the way the world works. And it has no basis either in the gospel or the world. Yeah. That make any sense to anybody in the room besides me. Cause I, sorry, Mike, I just went off on another riff, but <laughs> pull it together, pull it in, do something. You're good. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Johnny, does that make sense to you? Yep. Totally. <laughs> okay, folks. That just means they, they, they're, they're just doing it. Cause I asked them to do it. Come on. Go. How do we, t- <laughs> how do we take Johnny Morrison's light as air and, Work it into the concrete. Okay. Give me yeah. Well, to, to land the plane here. I'm yeah. sorry, I kind of went off on that. Yeah. Crazy riff, but it was so important to me. But anyways, go ahead. Anybody? One thing I'm thinking of as Johnny's talking about uh, political divides and antagonisms, and some of the <clears throat> complicity of the church with commodifi- commodification and racism, etc. I think one thing that's practical is just doing an inventory and taking an account of who your friends are. Mm-hmm. And are you willing and able to build friendships with people who don't think, look, believe, behave as you do? And I think that just building those somewhat natural and unnatural friendships can be pretty simple but powerful practice into joining what God's doing. Yeah. I think we have this we have this program at, at our church that is actually more about emotionally healthy spirituality, but there's a phrase that keeps resounding when those groups happen, which is that risk brings change. And I really like that idea as a sort of praxis statement just for Christian living, that risk brings change, that when we risk in this bigger story, we get our hands on it, even if it's imperfect, even if it's incomplete, if it's just an experiment in living out this gospel story in our immediate context, it has a power to show us what is possible. So I think like small risks engender large change in us personally and in the world around us. So like, yeah, who are your friends? Fitch getting at the table. For us, that's been a huge practice, especially in light of your work. We like as simple as like walking your neighborhood and getting to know people has mm-hmm. really led to substantial change in us, especially in areas where we were, it was easy for us to like have a theoretical conversation and close doors. And then all of a sudden you actually like go meet these folks who are in this community and your whole expectations and theories are challenged by the reality of a person in that world. Uh, like one of the stories I tell in the book is just that a group of us with not very much money pooled our money together to start like a little bookstore and coffee shop. And it didn't succeed post COVID, but what it did for me was help me imagine what's possible when a community of people together pool small amounts of resources like what kind of thing can happen out of that and so i feel like yeah, there's a there's a weightiness to small risks that help us see something way bigger than we could have before which i think is why our faith needs to get practiced it needs to get its hands on something even as small as in your neighborhood having dinner like those things aren't huge but they have a huge reward in the end for our own heart and our own imagination yes these are the spaces god works inter relational connection i'll just close with this i i i think what you two gentlemen are highlighting is the fact that we need them the holy spirit is all we always think about the holy spirit us protestants as internal it's something interior happening in my soul which the holy spirit is 
But the Holy Spirit's power and presence is active all around us in that coffee shop you tried to start, in the neighborhoods, in the, in the tables. And that's where we have to get our, our, our faith out of this space of interiorization in our heads and imagine mm-hmm. it, self-created imaginations to the work of the Holy Spirit around us. Folks, mm-hmm. the book is Light as Air by Johnny Morrison. And uh, we want to recommend it to you. We'll have it on our show notes. And uh, we've been blessed by it. We think you will, too. Folks, great to have you with us, Johnny. Great to uh, talk to you, Mike Moore, after, uh, you know, not seeing you for all of uh, 400 years of silence. (laughs) It's great to uh, have had Johnny Morrison with us here at Theology on Mission podcast as we wrap things up. Thanks, Johnny, for being with us. Thanks for having me. Until next time, folks, Theology on Mission podcast, it's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch over and out. (laughs) Nailed it.